Hello, dear listeners. If you're new here, we extend a warm welcome and invite you to explore our rich catalog of spine-tingling tales. There's plenty to catch up on while we're on a brief break, preparing new episodes. And to our loyal followers, thank you for your continued support. If you're looking for even more chilling stories, consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts. Your subscription helps us bring those tales to life. We'll be returning soon with more stories and possibly a longer, more elaborate storyline to our episodes. Until then, happy listening, and remember, the night is just the beginning. The Dexter Wannabe Drive down the alley and park in the gravel driveway next to the garage. I'll leave the garage door partly open so you can sneak in underneath. Then close the garage door behind you. Those aren't exactly the typical instructions you would expect from a girl to meet for a first date. But that's similar to what Giles Tetro received. Giles had been chatting on the dating site PlentyOfFish.com with a girl named Sheena and this was to be their first meeting. Sheena didn't exist, though. Giles followed the strange instructions and snuck in underneath the garage door to find himself in a dark garage with a man in a hockey mask and a blue light in his hand. The blue light was from an 800-volt stun baton which was shoved at Giles' stomach. He immediately fell to the ground as his attacker stuck duct tape over his eyes. Giles managed to tear the duct tape off his eyes only to find a handgun pointed straight at his face. He could tell from the eyes peering through the hockey mask that this crazy person intended to end his life. That's when he made the split-second decision to try to grab the gun from his attacker. The moment he got his hands on the gun, he had a revelation. The gun was made of plastic. It was a fake. Giles fell to the floor and rolled as fast as he could back under the garage door and into the alley. Once outside the garage, Giles realized that he couldn't run. The stun baton had made his legs temporarily useless. He tried to crawl down the gravel alley while his attacker tried to pull him by the legs back into the garage. Giles looked up and saw a man and woman walking their dog and watching the whole ordeal. He called to them for help, but his attacker laughed and said, Come on, Frank, let's go back in the garage. The attacker was trying to make the couple believe it was all a silly game. The couple walked away, worried it was a trick, and the two men were trying to rob them. The attacker hid back in the garage, which gave Giles a chance to crawl his way into his truck and drive away. Afraid and embarrassed, Giles didn't report the attack to the police. This was a grave mistake because the whole episode would be repeated a week later with a different victim. Johnny Altinger was a tall 38-year-old tech worker looking for love on PlentyOfFish.com. Johnny had a close group of friends that he kept in touch with daily, and he let them know he had been chatting with a girl named Jen and was planning on meeting her that evening. Johnny shared the conversations he had with Jen with several of his friends, even up until he pulled into the alleyway at 7 p.m. on October 10, 2008. Unfortunately, that was the last time anyone heard from Johnny. It was a holiday weekend in Canada, and his friends were getting worried since Johnny had not shown up for a motorcycle trip they had planned. 
That Monday, several of his friends received similar emails from Johnny's email address. Hey there, I've met an extraordinary woman named Jen who has offered to take me on a nice long tropical vacation. We'll be staying in her winter home in Costa Rica. Phone number to follow soon. I won't be back in town until December 10th, but I will be checking my email periodically. See you around the holidays. Johnny. This was clearly out of character for Johnny, and his friends didn't believe he had written it. Their worry was escalated when they called his workplace to find that he hadn't shown up. Worry turned to frustration when they called the police and they refused to do anything. Johnny's friends took matters into their own hands and broke into his apartment. Once inside, they found his clothes and suitcase were there and even his passport. With this new information, they went back to the police. Detective Bill Clark was handed the case. Normally, he dealt with homicide rather than missing persons cases, but he knew something was wrong in this instance. Luckily, Johnny's friends had a very important piece of information. They knew the exact directions to the house where the date with Jen was supposed to have taken place. Police contacted the person who was renting the home and brought him in for an interview. His name was Mark Twitchell. Twitchell was an aspiring independent filmmaker. He had produced a low-budget Star Wars fan film and was working on another film inspired by his favorite TV show, Dexter. During the interview, Twitchell seemed genuinely surprised at the idea that someone had used his garage for an assault. He gladly offered to show them around the garage which he used as his makeshift movie studio. When he showed them the garage, he told the police that the padlock on the garage door wasn't his. Someone had apparently switched the lock on the garage door. Once inside, he showed them the props he used for his films and even showed police the script he was working on called House of Cards. The House of Cards storyline featured a serial killer who finds his victims on the internet and then lures them back to his kill room, where he uses a stun baton and a hockey mask to incapacitate his victims. Police had their suspicions about Twitchell, but without a body and no evidence of a murder, they had no reason to hold him. They had to let him go. Afterwards, Detective Clark re-watched the video of the initial interview with Twitchell and believed he was being honest and upfront. Just a movie geek making low-budget films. Police had no idea that Twitchell's movie script matched exactly what had happened to Johnny. In a bizarre move, just after the interview, Twitchell sent an email to detectives titled, More Info That Might Be Useful. In this email, he claimed that he suddenly remembered that he had bought a car from a guy at a gas station. He explained that it was just a random guy that approached him and said he wanted to sell his car. Twitchell only had $40 on him at the time, and the guy accepted it. The car was a red Mazda worth about $20,000. Twitchell claimed the guy said he had met a rich sugar mama who was going to buy him a new car when they got back from vacation. This was all too bizarre and Detective Clark didn't believe Twitchell's story. He looked up the car that he claimed to have bought for $40 and discovered it was a red Mazda registered to Johnny Altinger. This tied Twitchell directly to Johnny. This new information certainly made Twitchell their main and only suspect, but again, they had no reason to hold him or even issue a search warrant without evidence that a crime had been committed. Detective Clark decided to go to the public for help. That's when the couple that were walking their dog down the alley came forward. 
When they heard the news, they assumed they had watched the attack of John Altinger and told their story to the police. But police quickly realized the attack the couple were describing happened a week earlier than Johnny's disappearance. Police now had the realization that there was a second victim out there, and they had no idea if this person was alive or dead. A month after his attack, Giles Tetro heard the news that Johnny had gone missing in the same garage where he was attacked. He knew it must have been the same attacker. It compelled him to finally go to the police to tell his story. Armed with the new information of Giles' attack, police now knew that a crime had been committed at the garage, and they believed Twitchell was the attacker. A search warrant was issued for both Twitchell's car and the house he was renting. When investigators arrived, they found a mountain of evidence. Upon searching the garage, they found the hockey mask, stun baton, garbage bags, duct tape, knives, plastic coveralls, and a pellet pistol, all with traces of blood. There was blood all over the walls, floor, and kill table. There was even an empty water pitcher with blood residue all over it. Twitchell had claimed these were all just movie props, and the blood was fake, but further testing showed it was real blood, and the DNA matched Johnny Altinger. The trunk of Twitchell's car had a huge puddle of blood, and in the back seat they found his laptop covered with Spider-Man stickers. When computer forensics experts got inside the laptop, they found the most damning evidence of all. In the deleted files, they found a file titled SK Confessions. The text was horrifying. It was a detailed account of his butchering and dismemberment of Johnny Altinger. It even spoke of the previous victim that narrowly escaped. A full copy of the SK Confessions document and evidence photos are available in the appendix at the end of the book. Police arrested Mark Twitchell on Halloween. They held him in jail for months while detectives poured through the evidence and built a case against him. They still needed a body to help their case and to bring closure to Johnny's friends and family. Months and months went by, but Twitchell wouldn't say a word about what he had done with the body. The text of SK Confessions went into graphic detail about how he had dismembered the body and put it down a storm drain. It said nothing, however, about where the storm drain was. Police searched sewers within a one-mile radius of Twitchell's home using sneaking cameras, but had no luck in discovering the remains. Twitchell wouldn't speak, so Detective Green put him in the back of his police car and drove him around for hours near the murder scene, trying to get him to disclose the location. But his plan didn't work. Several months later, Twitchell got a new lawyer and police received a phone call. Twitchell finally wanted to tell them where the body was, possibly thinking his cooperation would help his case. The lawyer gave police a map printed out from Google Maps with exact directions to the storm drain. They located it only a few blocks from Twitchell's home. During the trial, Twitchell took the stand in his own defense. His lawyers tried to paint him as a normal guy just a young man with Hollywood ambitions. They claimed that his plan was to lure a few men to the garage, scare them, and let them go, hoping they would tell their story and it would be good publicity for his upcoming movie. The story was ludicrous and the jury didn't buy it. It only took four hours for the jury to return a guilty verdict. 
On April 12, 2011, Mark Twitchell was sentenced to life in prison with no parole for a minimum of 25 years. Thanks for listening to True Crime Sleep Stories. If you aren't asleep yet, consider following the show. Maybe our next story will give you the peace of mind you desperately need. Or not.